Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 39, The Tramp. Jacksonville, Florida, was an exotic sort of a place. For a start, every second face I passed on the sidewalk there seemed to be black, from the swankiest swells strolling along right down to the street-corner tramps like myself. I shambled along bustling Bay Street, past extraordinary shops selling alligator-tooth whistles, heron plumes and palmetto hats. When I got to the docks, I almost tripped over a docile alligator tethered to a post. Steamers from the harbour nosed out of the mouth of the St John's River into the Atlantic and then turned to hug the coastline all the way up to New York, ferrying wealthy passengers back and forth, honeymooners, dignitaries, celebrities, knobs of all kinds, all looking for sunshine, warmth and entertainment, all of which Jacksonville provided in spades. Something else in plentiful supply in Jacksonville was tramps. Deadbeats, down-and-outs, hobos and bums. My now-practised eye spotted several of them shuffling up the bank of the wide river towards a little wood, and I began to follow them, hoping to pick up a few handy tips on how to get by in the city. And you know how I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that they were tramps? They looked like Charlie Chaplin, that's how. For months I'd been living rough, painfully aware that there were very likely wanted posters of me on every sheriff's notice board from dodge to dinner time. Sleeping rough, too, which was... well, it was rough. There you go. Clues in the name. I was tormented by visions of the bullet from Wild West Billy's gun striking down Edgar Hurley, and even though I never liked the man, I fervently wished I could call that bullet back. The only way to drive those nightmares from my mind was to think about Tilly and Wallace, who had acquired the status of a far-off and impossibly unattainable dream, and that didn't make sleep any easier. And I discovered, much to my chagrin, that if you wanted people to give you some change, or maybe even a bit of food, then the surest way to get them to cough up was to remind them of Charlie Chaplin. There was hardly a hobo or a bum anywhere in the continental United States at that time who hadn't rooted around in the trash or the charitable donations to some benevolent church in some small town somewhere and found himself a two-small jacket, baggy pants, oversized shoes and a little bow tie, Derby hats and canes were at a premium, and if you had one or other of these you guarded them jealously. And even the most filthily unshaven scoundrel would have the remnants of a crowd-pleasing little toothbrush moustache nestling amongst the stubble on his upper lip. There was no better get-up for a bum just then, and equally there was no better disguise for a wanted man. Nobody gave you a second glance. They gave you a first glance, the one that told them that there was someone who looked a bit like Charlie Chaplin, but a second would have left them feeling obliged to give you some coin or a sandwich. In short, if you wanted to survive hand-to-mouth in the early months of 1916, it wasn't enough to just be a tramp. You had to be THE tramp. You'll be thinking that this must have been hard for me to take, must have fuelled my Chaplinoia, if you like, and you'd be right. 
It wasn't just the tramps I saw every day, though, on every street corner, or my reflection every time I glimpsed it in a shop window or a puddle. Whatever I did, wherever I went, I just couldn't get away from him. I first hopped the train on which I'd escaped from Dodge at a little place called Las Vegas, a one-horse town where the nag in question had given up the ghost long ago. It was late autumn, winter was coming, the weather was getting cold and raw, especially if you were reduced to sleeping outdoors, and with not much of a plan except the instinct shared by swallows and bums, I decided to head south. In Amarillo, Texas, I was mooching along, minding my business, when I realised that there were crowds of people in the street, all heading in the same direction. I followed and found an event of some sort being set up outside the railway station, a reception. There was a dais and the mayor and tables bearing food and drink for the important local dignitaries. A train pulled in, and a little umpa band struck up a song of greeting, while a mob of citizens, like excited children, swarmed all over the train until they found their prey in a bathroom halfway through shaving himself and hauled him out of the window. It was Charlie, of course, and he looked thoroughly bewildered by all the fuss. The mayor put his arm around his shoulders and said, Mr. Chaplin, your friends of Amarillo, Texas, want to show their appreciation for all the happiness you have given them by asking you to join us in a sandwich and a Coca-Cola. And the childish delight those grown people took in watching a small British man from Kennington nibbling a sandwich, well, it was a thing to see. After that, I reached St. Louis and got a job as a hand loading bales of something or other onto a Mississippi barge and was able to ride this down as far as Memphis, mostly sitting on my backside, sharing a bottle of sipping whiskey with my new colleagues as the big fancy steamboats paddled by with the swells leaning on the rails. In Memphis, I came across some children playing on the steps in front of a townhouse. As I drew closer, I began to catch the words of the little rhyme they were all singing as they played out their little hand-slapping routine. And it went like this. Charlie Chaplin, meek and mild, took a sausage from a child. When the child began to cry, Charlie slapped him in the eye. Sounds about right, I thought. That meek and mild felt fantastically sarcastic. Then I made my way to the city of Atlanta, where early one Sunday morning I wandered into the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, no less, in a part of town called Peachtree. My present chaplain tramp outfit was nearing the end of its useful life, and I had in mind looking out a new, well, newer, pair of trousers and also some shoes, as I'd walked very nearly through the soles of my own. Before I really knew what was happening, the preacher there had fastened on to me and was using me as a prop for his sermon, which was about the iniquity of the obscene new contract Charlie had signed with a mutual film corporation. $670,000 a year it would bring him, which was, as this fellow pointed out in a cloud of spittle, $4.26 per minute. And for what? he raged for mocking the needy, for ridiculing those least able to speak for themselves, those who have fallen on hard times, those enthralled to the demon drink. Amen, came the answering cry from the faithful. I must have looked suitably downcast while taking in this staggering new landmark in Chaplin's inexorable progress, because I had offers of lunch from several charitable individuals, three of which I was able to take up before my aching stomach cried, no more. And then I came here, to Florida, to Jacksonville, where I found myself trailing a little knot of indigent chaplains until I came upon a whole community gathered around a campfire, all of them, black and white, dressed in as close an approximation as they could manage to the outfit that Charlie had made so popular. I shuffled close to the fire, and two chaps made a space for me. 
I, too, was an ersatz chaplain, as close to the real thing as ground raspberry leaves and catnip were to real tea, so they probably figured I belonged. Just to begin a conversation, I remarked upon the rash of chaplain hobos to my neighbour, a dark-skinned fellow, name of Ron, and he spent several minutes explaining that he was not a hobo. A hobo is someone who travels looking for work. A tramp is someone who only works when he has to and tries to avoid travelling. And a bum is someone who doesn't work at all. I'm a tramp, you see, like Charlie is a tramp. And like all these fellows, I said. Yeah, sure, we love Charlie. He's the patron saint of tramps. I recalled the sermon I'd heard in Atlanta, where the preacher had been so scornful of Chaplin for mocking boys just like these, but I could see nothing but affection for him in this little group. "'You see what Charlie did for us lately? Look at this!' Ron said. He took from his pocket a coin with a hole drilled through the middle so it could be threaded on a piece of elastic. "'It's just a little gimmick. It's called the Charlie Chaplin coin. You hold it in your hand, and when you let it go, it disappears up your sleeve.' "'Well, what's that got to do with Chaplin?' Lord only knows. But it's a gag, see? So, Ron shrugged. Anyway, the point is this. Say you find a scent. Well, then you go into the pharmacy or the drugstore or the tobacconist and you buy yourself a Charlie Chaplin coin with it. Then you take the elastic off it. You find yourself a vending machine and this coin is the same size and weight as a nickel. So you can get five cents worth of chocolate or fruit or whatever for your penny. I tell you, it's Charlie looking out for the brothers. That's what it is. Ain't that right, boys? All around me, the little group of tramps pulled these novelty coins from their pockets and dangled them from their fingers, saying, Amen! Reaching the Atlantic coast brought me to my senses. I couldn't go on like this, wandering from town to town like a bum, like a tramp, like the tramp. As far as being a wanted man was concerned, no one had paid me too much mind as far as I could tell, and Jacksonville was a long way from Dodge. It was time to get myself on my feet again, get myself a job. I had no skills except in the comedy line. I had some experience of service, making beds and cleaning rooms back when I was a college porter, and I wondered about whether I might be able to work in a hotel. I'd need to clean myself up a bit first. The English accent would surely be an absolute boon. I could probably parley that into working as a receptionist before too long, or maybe head waiter. During the day, I began staking out the big swanky hotels like the Mason and the Davis, trying to work out how to get in there. If I could find a back way in, I reasoned, I could make my way up to the rooms, maybe find someone of a similar build, borrow his clothes, perhaps on a permanent basis, and then present myself as a prospective employee. I'd have no references, of course, but I worked on a story to cover that in my head. I'd worked at the Dorchester, why not? I'd been in service as a valet. I modelled my demeanour on Jobson, Considine's English butler, treated it like a character acting job. I'd been stranded in New York by the outbreak of war. It was almost the truth, after all. The gentleman I worked for had hurried back home to enlist as an officer, and I was to follow shortly afterwards after closing up our New York apartment. He was lost on the Lusitania. He was a friend of the Vanderbilts. It was a tragedy personally and professionally, but now I was ready to return to the world of work, without employment, available. Thus it was that one evening I found myself lurking by the fancy Burbage Hotel, considering a back way in. There was an alleyway behind that ran past the kitchen entrances, and I was watching for a quiet moment to sneak in. Suddenly I noticed, to my astonishment and concern about my own mental equilibrium, that around half a dozen Charlie Chaplins had mustered there for some unknown reason. 
I felt my moorings loosening, just as I had at Cleveland's Lunar Park, when it seemed to be overrun with inexplicable simulacra of my nemesis. Was this real, or just my chaplinoia? As if I wasn't unnerved enough, my new acquaintance Ron the Tramp suddenly appeared out of the shadows right at my shoulder. He too was the living image of Charlie Chaplin, albeit a dark-skinned version. "'You spotted them, huh?' he said with a wink. "'You can see them too,' I said with a surge of relief. "'Yeah, but keep it under your hat. "'If everyone knew about it, the whole hustle would be ruined. "'What are you talking about, Ron? "'I told you, didn't I, that Charlie was the patron saint of us tramps?' "'Well, I don't think I'll forget that in a hurry. "'Well, tonight, at the Burbage, "'the mayor of Jacksonville is holding a reception for all the movie people.' He loves them, you see, thinks they'll be the making of the town. Now his idea of a gag, so they'll think he's one of them, is to have all the waiters dress up as Charlie Chaplin. Uh, what, those guys there? Exactly. Now, a pair of enterprising fellas such as we could mosey on over there once the shindig is underway, and no one would bat an eyelid. There's food. Food like you wouldn't believe. And drink. You with me? I'm with you, I said. "'Thank the good Lord above for Charlie Chaplin,' Ron said. "'Huh,' I grunted. "'Can I hear an amen?' "'Yeah, yeah, amen,' I said, grudgingly. "'Then the two of us sauntered as casually as we could "'over to the kitchen entrance of the Burbage "'and followed the Chaplin waiters inside.' <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss chapter 40 babe it was a good plan the plan to blend in with all the charlie chaplin waiters but it was a much better plan for me than it was for ron it wasn't his fault. Mother Nature had given him one crucial disadvantage. We made it into the Burbage by the back entrance, straight into the kitchens, where mountains of food were being prepared. Crab, lobster, cooked meat platters, a side of pork, and our mouths began to water. We were a little bit too canny to just tuck in right then and there, and we went through the kitchen to check out the lie of the land beyond, nudging one another in anticipation of the treats to come. Up the stairs we could hear the murmur of conversation at the reception itself, and we got as far as the foyer outside the ballroom, where pairs of local dignities were still sauntering in, dressed in their finery. One or two of the ladies smiled at us as they passed by, and one said, "'Oh, isn't that simply adorable?' I gave her my best chaplain simper, and she melted, practically had to be carried into the function by her bow." Ron tiptoed over to get a squint into the room, and he turned back to me with an expression of pure glee on his features. "'See the big tables at the back with the white tablecloths on them? That'll be the banquet, buffet-style. This is going to be a cinch!' My stomach gave a rumble. It had been a good long while since I'd filled it up properly. "'We should go in and start collecting up empties,' Ron whispered. "'That way we fit right in, see?' 
I nodded, and we stepped through the double doors. The room was packed with Jacksonville society, mingling with what I took to be the local movie-making community, while chaplains moved amongst them whisking food and drinks in and out, some of them essaying drunk chaplain footwork, nearly dropping their trays, getting appreciative smiles. This was going to be easy. I turned to Ron to suggest we split up, when suddenly a fellow in a tuxedo and a black tie strode over to us. He wasn't a guest, I figured, as he was carrying a tray of canapes, delicious-looking little puff-pastry confections that I could hardly tear my eyes away from, but he wasn't a chaplain either. With a frisson of alarm, I figured that he must be the head waiter, the boss. "'Who are you?' he demanded in a low hiss. "'We staff,' Ron said, his eyes darting from side to side. "'Like hell you are,' the man said. "'You think I know no better than to hire Negro Charlie Chaplins?' Ron's shoulders slumped. "'But, sir, I can work.' "'No, no, no. Out you go,' the head waiter insisted. Ron, destroyed, began to shuffle towards the double doors, and I followed in his wake, dreaming of crab and lobster. The head waiter turned to me. "'Here,' he said, thrusting the tray of canapes he was carrying at me. "'You mingle. I'll see this chancer off the premises.' And there it was. I was in, and Ron was out. He shot me a baleful look as he left, with his bicep trapped in an iron grip, and then he was gone. I stood for a moment, holding the tray of canapes, until a couple came over and helped themselves, barely giving me a second glance. Oh well, I thought. I might as well make the most of it. So I popped a vol-au-vent in my mouth when I judged no one was looking, and began to circulate. Soon my tray was picked clean by well-heeled gannets, and I tracked back to the kitchen to collect another. On the way back to the reception, I ate another couple of treats. After all, otherwise I was working for nothing, wasn't I? When I returned, a man was taking the stage, red-faced and beaming with pleasure. He wore a white suit with a white waistcoat, and a gold watch chain looped across his ample belly. He wafted himself with a white Panama hat, and the room quieted to a respectful hush. "'Good evening, friends,' he began with a huge smile. "'I want to thank you all for coming along to this mighty fine soiree "'in honour of our new friends from the Vim Motion Picture Company!' A wave of his arm encompassed the people he had in mind, and a ripple of warm applause broke out. As the speech seemed to have reduced the call on canapes, I retreated to the back corner to watch. "'Now for those that don't know me, and those that do,' My name is J.E.T. Bowden, and I am proud to be the mayor of this fair city. Some applause interrupted his remarks, and he inclined his head graciously. Thank you kindly, friends. And I want to tell you folks gathered here tonight that it is my intention, as mayor, to make Jacksonville nothing less than the movie-making capital of the world. Again, this was greeted enthusiastically by all present. Yes, the Vim Company, led by Mr. Lewis Burstein, who I can see there and who I am proud to call a personal friend, they have moved their operation down to Jacksonville from Bayonne, New Jersey, because they have realised what all picture makers will realise soon enough. You can't make pictures in the North. The weather is so bad that every single scene needs to be shot indoors, and if you do venture outside, there's no scenery worth a dime. Yes, madam, I said dime. No need for palpitations. Now then, what about Los Angeles, I hear you say? What about... Hollywood. Some booing began at the mention of that name. Well, I say yes. Some film companies have set up all the way out there in the desert five whole days of back-breaking travel by locomotive from New York City, but all the top outfits, all the men of vision and the men of profound good sense are coming to Jacksonville. Uproarious cheers greeted this rabble-rousing performance. 
because in Jacksonville we are just twelve hours from New York by pleasure steamer, a bracing little pick-me-up of a journey which will surely entice all the top acting talent from Broadway to try their hand at the flickers. In Jacksonville, we have scenic locations coming out of our very ears. We have the Atlantic beaches. We have the mighty St. John's River. We have forests. We have swamps. We have sunshine all day long. We have an ostrich farm. We have over a thousand miles of navigable waterways and seven miles of beachfront. And we have 28 wholesale groceries. The relevance of this last item escaped me, but that didn't stop another mighty cheer. Hollywood may have Charlie Chaplin and the Keystone Cops. More booing at this, and with a start I realised that I'd started it myself. But we have Walter Stull, and we have Bobby Burns. I gathered from the reaction in a couple of places that those two gentlemen were in the room. We have the lovely Valder Valkyrian. Some raunchy wolf whistles greeted this name check. We have Kalem Studios, we have Biograph and Vitagraph, we have Tannhauser and Gaumont, we have Eagle and Artcraft, we have Motoscope and the New York Motion Picture Company. Over 30 of the nation's, nay, the world's, leading film companies are already based here in Jacksonville. And now we have Vim taking up residence at the old Lubin Studios on Riverside Avenue. I tell you all, friends, and I give you my word on this. A new golden age for Jacksonville is just around the corner. The good people of Jacksonville want the movies here. Don't let anyone tell you different. Or did I imagine the mile-long queue of debutantes on Riverside Avenue only the other afternoon, all of them desperate to get their pretty young faces in the flickers, eh? So welcome, a hearty southern welcome to you all. I'm going to conclude my remarks now and hand over the stage to Vim's biggest star, and I mean biggest. We love him here in Jacksonville, and Cutie Pierce's roadhouse hasn't been the same without him, but now he's back. A glorious homecoming indeed. So please put your hands together in appreciation for the 20th Century Four and their leading vocalist, the half-ton of jollity, his good self, Mr. Babe Hardy. A musical group materialised on the stage, a drummer, a bass player and a saxophonist and a lady pianist in a shimmering calf-length gown. The singer then stepped forward to wildly enthusiastic applause. He was a big fellow indeed, tall and extremely well upholstered, yet he moved nimbly on his feet, almost like he was filled with air. He had a face like the moon, which was glowing with modest pleasure at his reception, and he shared this with his accompanists, offering them a generous introductory gesture each, before gliding over and kissing the lady pianist's hand. "'Mrs. Hardy?' he said. "'Mr. Hardy?' she replied, and the big fellow beamed. He was every inch, and there were plenty of those inches— the southern gentleman, and the crowd absolutely adored him. When he opened his mouth to sing, I could tell why. He had the voice of an angel, a soaring pure tenor that seemed to wring every drop of emotion from each song, even as his big smiling face seemed to regard everyone in the room as his friend. Shine on Harvest Moon was his first, a popular number from before the war, and the room was captivated. Women sighed, and their menfolk were equally entranced. Suddenly I was aware that the head waiter chap he had reappeared, and he indicated with an impatient whisk of his hand that I should follow the other chaplains down to the kitchen. Several were lingering by the door, hanging on every note of the song, but we were all ushered down the stairs where the buffet was ready for collection. I grabbed a large platter of sliced meats and hurried back up to the reception to catch more of the singer's performance. After another couple of songs the buffet was complete and the waiters were all drawn in by the entertainment, no one was paying any attention to what was behind them. I saw a chance to grab something to eat, and I took it. I took some slices of cold beef, 
shoved two in my mouth and the rest in my jacket pocket. Moving along, I wolfed a chicken leg, fried southern style, and spent about half a minute wondering if I could stick a lobster inside my coat for later, before settling for a couple of stuffed crabs, jamming them together belly to belly to keep the insides in. Up on stage, the big singer was introducing his finale, and thanking everyone most graciously for their kind attention, as I stuck some smaller items in my trouser pockets, trying not to think about the fluff the stickier ones would inevitably accrue, and how long it had been there. The band struck up You Are the Ideal of My Dreams, which Hardy delivered beautifully, clasping his hands to his heart. Knowing somehow that this was the last number, one or two hungry souls began to slip over to the buffet in order to beat the rush, so I was obliged to terminate my raid and retreat to behind a pillar at the side of the room. Tumultuous applause greeted the close of the song and of the act, with Hardy and his wife and their bandmates taking numerous bows, Hardy himself managing to look particularly genteel. Then with one mind, a tidal wave of well-heeled jewellery-jangling Jacksonville society descended upon the groaning boards and commenced to strip it bare, like it was they who had been living rough for the last six months. I stayed out of the way, occasionally slipping a pastry from my pocket to my mouth, and tried not to attract anyone's attention. After all, I'd got what I came for, and didn't want to do any more unnecessary unpaid work than I had to. As it happened, though, I hadn't entirely escaped everyone's notice. "'Good evening to you, sir,' a melodious voice said, and there beside me was the big singer, looking me up and down with a friendly smile. I had a mouthful, so I just gave him what I hoped was a cheery nod. "'Now here's the thing,' the big man went on. "'I figure that you are not a genuine member of the waiting staff. Reason one, I work here at the Burbage every night. I organise the cabaret here, and I do not recognise you. Reason two, I could see you from on the stage while I was singing,' and you were stuffing your face like there was no tomorrow. So, friend, do you mind telling me your story? Um, I assure you, sir, I began. Hardy pointed a delicate finger in the direction of my shirt front. You have crab claws poking out from the lapel of your jacket, he said discreetly, and I hurriedly poked them back out of sight. You were saying? I sighed. Something about the big fellow's open and friendly demeanour made me want to tell him everything, but I could hardly afford to be taken to a police station after all the time I'd been on the run. They'd have had my picture and would send me back to Dodge. "'You're right, sir,' I said. "'I have fallen on hard times and took advantage of the fact that the hotel was using waiters dressed as tramps.' "'No!' the big man chuckled. "'That is astonishing.' "'What nerve! I applaud you, sir. I really do.' Actually, the idea belonged to a companion of mine who was not as fortunate as I. I was going to take these crabs to him later. A fine-spirited gesture indeed, the singer said. Now tell me this. Your accent, sir. English. That's right. Uh, You have a good ear, I said. And a remarkably fine voice, if you don't mind my saying so. The big man flushed with pleasure and even preened a little. Do you know, when I was a boy in Milledgeville, Georgia, I made a pilgrimage to Atlanta to hear Enrico Caruso. It was like a religious experience. I decided then and there to dedicate my life to music. I think he would be proud to hear you say so, I said. You are very kind, sir, very kind indeed. Come and join us at our table and tell me how you came to fall so low. Really? I said. Why, certainly. This way. He led me to a table where a number of his friends were congregated, including the members of the band, and when we arrived he introduced himself most formally. "'My name is Norvell Hardy,' he said, "'but as you doubtless heard, I am known to my friends as Babe. "'This is Madeline, Mrs. Hardy, and this is Bert Tracy, "'and you are 
Arthur, I said. Arthur Smith. I'd barely had cause to use any name, let alone my own, for a good few months, but since that business in Dodge I'd thought it best to use an alias, and I stuck with one that I'd used once before when trying to keep Carno from knowing that Alf Reeves had rehired me. Move over, Boyt, Hardy said to his friend, a wiry little chap who I later discovered had once been a jockey in Australia. Oh, babe, not another hard luck case, mate, this Bert sighed, giving me the gimlet eye. So, Mr Smith, we are all ears. Well, he was so kind and so friendly and so interested that I ended up telling him a, a potted version of my whole story. All the while people were coming up to him, shaking him by the hand, praising his singing, but after every interruption he would turn back to me and say, Pray continue, Mr Smith. I glossed over the gunfight in Dodge City, skipped the fact that I was wanted for murder, but otherwise I told him all about the Carno years, touring music halls and vaudeville, the big spectacular shows and the smaller, funnier ones with Stan. I told him about Tilly and Wallace and our unfortunate separation due to the war. I may have laid it on a bit thick. Whereupon Babe Hardy pulled out a big white handkerchief to dab at his cheeks. And naturally I told him about Chaplin how I had started out with him, how we'd become rivals, and how fate had driven us to opposite extremes. The irony, Hardy declared, misfortune obliges you to masquerade as Charlie Chaplin to beg, all the while knowing that you could have been every bit the success that he has become. I agreed with him, naturally, but suddenly began to worry that pitching things as strongly as that would not seem believable to these people I'd just met. Bert Tracy, in particular, was sniffing dismissively at parts of my tale, so I decided to play it down a little. Oh, I, I don't know about that, but Charlie has certainly made the most of his talents. Hardy's moonlike face took on a look of determination. You know what we should do, he said, and his wife sighed, knowing perfectly well what was coming. We should take Arthur here under our wing. Lewis? Lewis Burstein, the head of Vim Pictures, trotted over at Hardy's beckoning finger. Allow me to present to you Mr. Arthur Smith, a comedian from England. He has many years of vaudeville behind him and worked with Charlie Chaplin. I think he would be an asset, and we should certainly take him on. Burstein shrugged. Anything you say, babe, he said. Anything you say. And just like that, I was in the flickers. <laughs> Babe Hardy's generosity did not end there. He insisted on installing me in a room at the Atlantic Hotel, where most of the Vim gang were staying, and advanced me fifty dollars. I was quite overcome with gratitude, and promised to pay him back. "'There's only one way in the world you can repay me,' Hardy said, putting a big hand on my shoulder. "'When, some day, as you most likely will, you find someone who is worse off than you, just help him out. Or her. That will be ample repayment for me.' and at the end of the evening he arranged for all the leftover food from the reception to be placed in the luggage compartment of his old Model T banger and obliged me to direct him to the campsite by the St John's River, saying that he simply must see this community of ragged Charlie Chaplins for himself. The flivers headlights swept over the clearing where I had sat around this very campfire only the night before. The tramps looked at the motor, puzzled and poised to scatter, their eyes illuminated and shining oddly in the beams. I leaned out of the motor car and beckoned to a familiar figure. "'Hey, Ron!' I shouted. "'Over here!' Ron got to his feet, bewildered, and shuffled over to see who I was and what I wanted. When he saw me, his face creased in surprise. But then I opened the trunk with a flourish and showed him the bounty from the reception. He caught a glorious whiff of seafood, and his face lit up. 
Hey, boys, he called. Grubs up. Between us, we hauled the food over to the campfire, where the tramps, disbelieving, fell on it and began to destroy it, and I could hear grunts of pleasure and audible lip-smacking in the darkness all around me. Babe Hardy leaned back against his automobile and beamed almost as brightly as his headlamps. "'Didn't I tell you?' Ron said, turning to the others with his arm around my shoulders. "'Charlie Chaplin, he the patron saint of tramps!' Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.